Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 82 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. And today I'm joined by Eric Hamilton, who's the president and CEO of the Quintron Instrument Company. Before I tell you a little bit about Quintron and Eric and and our conversation today is going to be all about SIBO breath testing. I just wanted to let you know that today is the last episode of the Healthy Gut Podcast for season two. Oh, <laughs> it's been an amazing season and Quintron have been our platinum, one of our platinum, platinum sponsors for the season. And so we really couldn't have brought you season two without the incredible and generous support of Quintron. So a big thank you to Quintron and it's wonderful that we've got you as our final episode of season two. But guys, we are working on season three and this is where I need your help. So I've got a really short survey that I would absolutely love for you to fill in. In the survey, you can tell me what you want to see in season three. So the types of topics you would like me to cover, the type of people you would like me to interview for you. This podcast is for you. It's a wonderful resource for SIBO patients and practitioners alike, but I need to know what you want. So filling in this survey will literally take two minutes of your time and it will be so beneficial for me as I go into season three preparation. And season three will be coming back in 2019. So I can't wait to bring it back to you. And another thing before we start today's podcast is it's Thanksgiving just around the corner and Christmas not long after that. And if you're thinking, I have no idea what I'm going to eat for the holidays, well, never fear, I've got the SIBO holiday cookbook for you. This cookbook is filled with absolutely delicious appetizers and entrees. We call them entrees here in Australia. You guys in the States call them appetizers, beautiful side dishes, sensational desserts, and some really tasty baked treats. So it's beautiful recipes that are totally SIBO friendly so you can still enjoy your Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays and eat delicious SIBO food but still have some fun with it. And if you'd like to get a transcript of today's episode or any episodes of the Healthy Gut Podcast, don't forget that you can join up as a member. It's absolutely free and members get full transcriptions of the podcast. So just head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast. Not only will you be able to see the show notes from today's episode, but you can also sign up as a member and you can take the survey for season three. So Eric Hamilton, like I said, is the president and CEO of Quintron Instrument Company. They were established in 1962 and 
can you believe it? His grandfather was actually one of the founding members of Quintron Instrument Company. So he's a third generation business. They are the first medical device company to develop specialised breath analyzers and collection systems for gastrointestinal disorders. And Quintron are considered the gold standard and true pioneer of breath uh, analysis for SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and carbohydrate malabsorptions, making them the true global leader of the highest quality and trusted devices for breath testing. Eric Hamilton has been at Quintron and a driving force since 1999. And like I said, his grandfather was part of the founding uh, group of people of Quintron and his father was also at Quintron. They've won some amazing awards, including one winning two years in a row now, Best Medical Device Manufacturer in 2018 and 2017 from Global Health, and the Best in Hydrogen and Methane Breath Testing Solutions in 2017. They've also uh, partnered with NERC, N-E-R-C, which is allowing them to provide an incredible resource to practitioners. So they're providing analyzers to physicians so they can learn more about SIBO testing and carbohydrate malabsorption, which is fantastic because we need more physicians out there understanding SIBO and knowing how they can test it. And because Eric, you know, just likes to keep himself busy, he also founded Synergy CME Resource Group Inc. in 2016, which is an independent non-profit medical organization which develops continuing education programs and provides industry leaders, medical providers and patients with unbiased forum for education of unique and underserved specialties such as SIBO and gastrointestinal health. So, Eric, it's wonderful to have you here today. And we're going to talk all about SIBO breath testing. So, I can't wait for us to dive into that. So, let's start off with a little bit about your own experience with SIBO. You yourself have had it, so you know firsthand what it's like to be living and dealing with SIBO. Well, thank you so much for having me on here. I really much appreciate the opportunity to come speak with you and your listeners. It's been a treat to work with you over these last couple of years and seeing how everything has just been transpiring in the SIBO community and that we're all here to help each other and learn more. And so, yeah, like with my SIBO issue that I had much long ago, um, it was really unique because I, I didn't really know what was going on and I, I didn't think anything of it. I just figured this was normal to have um, digestive issues periodically. And, and I didn't have a very severe case of SIBO, but was, what was unique was I'm in, I'm in this breath testing company, right? And we, I know everything about the breath testing and I work with patients and practitioners and I'm hearing all about these digestive issues and I had never actually tested myself. I've, I've taken the test as far as like testing the, the units and working with the machines and working with the test kits, but I never actually did the full protocol of fasting and going through the full process. And so I did that and I was like, wow, oh, well, this is what it is. And so I I, I decided to then kind of learn more about it and gross and engross myself into this um, realm of being like, wow, well, now it all makes sense. It kind of put everything back together where it was like wonderful. And so then I worked with a couple of different practitioners to kind of 
determine different um, protocols or testing measures, make sure that they were still right, and learning about the different diets and treatments that were out there. And and so over the time, I began to became my own guinea pig, um, just like many of us do, such as you and some of the other practitioners that are out there that are coming up with different diets and, and different treatment protocols, is we all become our own guinea pigs because so many of us suffer from this and don't realize it until we finally get tested uh, via breath testing or um, uh, another means that some people might might try to do to, to determine SIBO. And so once I realized that, it really brought me into trying to find the best way to provide accurate and reliable information for all practitioners and patients to have that confidence that, you know, Quintron was founded on, but it just kind of was something that I didn't realize until I really learned and suffered myself from, from this. And so that's why we, we've always just been focusing on 100% making sure that these machines are spot on as best as they can from the technology that's available out there and making sure that our collection systems are the best in the industry because you can have a fantastic analyzer, but garbage in, garbage out. If you take a poor breath sample or you provide a poor test kit, then it doesn't matter how good or poor your analyzer is because whatever you put in is what you're going to get out, just like your, our bodies are, right? So when we're putting different things in our bodies, our body's going to react. And so you you want to make sure that that is, you know, uh, above par. And so that's really what we've been focusing on now uh, more than ever is making sure that we're providing the best for everybody. Let's talk about why we should do a breath test in the first instance. Uh, and I'm actually just about to do use one of your breath test uh, collectors on uh, next week, actually, um, to retest for SIBO after doing the elemental diet. So I'm super excited to see what those results say. But let's talk about why we would test for SIBO. Why can't, why don't we just go off our symptoms? Why do we need to have a breath test done? So testing in general really gives, in my opinion, and I think a lot of practitioners and and even patients once they've done the test will agree, is it gives you a real confirmation. So I could sit there and say, I feel gross after I eat something, but it may not be SIBO. It could be something totally different. And we can go off of our symptoms and I can say, well, when I drink this glass of milk per se for carbohydrate malabsorption, that I'm like, oh, I'm lactose intolerant. And so I can't eat cheese. Well, that may not be the case because guess what? SIBO mimics so many other conditions. And so I may do a breath test or um, another test, let's say, for lactose intolerance and, and it turns positive. Well, now I've avoided milk and cheese and other dairies and things like that, but I still feel sick. So, well, I just had this test. I confirmed it. Well, all of a sudden I do a SIBO test because my doctor says, well, let's do SIBO. Okay, great. Well, now I have SIBO. Well, did I have SIBO before? Okay, well, let's treat for the SIBO and see. Hey, guess what? Now I can drink milk or now I can eat cheese and I can enjoy things that I previously thought that I couldn't. And so having a breath test specifically for SIBO or whatever condition you're doing, but in this case, SIBO, it really rules out and gives you versus something of exclusion. It gives you that inclusion, 
And even if your test comes negative, that's not a bad thing. That just means that now you know what it potentially isn't and you can focus on the right area to heal yourself with your practitioner. It's really valid um, what you talk about there, Eric, around having um, insight into what is and isn't going on in your body. And I often talk with my SIBO coaching program clients that when we get a negative test result, be it a SIBO breath test or another test, that that isn't a problem. It's just helping to refine our focus so that we know what we're not having to deal with. And sometimes we're so desperate to get a positive result because we just want an answer that when that negative result comes through, we're like, oh, God damn it. Now what am I supposed to do? Well, hooray, you don't have to deal with that one thing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. One thing, um, let's talk about what you test for in SIBO and how it works. So I know your breath test so well because it's I've only ever used the Quintron breath test kits to test for my own SIBO. Um, but let's start off with how it physically works. What are you physically doing when you do a SIBO breath test? So for those of you who haven't gone through the test, um, this will be sometimes a little bit scary or it sounds a little bit weird, but it's very, very simple to do. So for the most part, you're going to fast for 12 hours, sometimes a little longer based on if your practitioner prefers that, um, based on your medical history. And you'll follow a a short diet for um, maybe the day before just to kind of make sure that your body is um, processing things, you know, out. So because what we want is we want to see what you're doing in a fasting state. And so we'll take a breath sample using a collection device that has a a bag on the end of it currently that removes the first part of the breath that we don't want. It's kind of the the space between your mouth and the top of your lungs. That The air is useless. We don't want it. So we call that the discard bag. And then you're going to be blowing through this mouthpiece. And as you're blowing, this bag fills up to get rid of the air that we don't want. And there's a hole in there so that you don't explode the bag. And so that, that's a normal thing. And we want the very bottom of your lungs because at the if you look at a picture of your lungs, it looks like a roots of a tree. And at the very end of those roots, there's things called alveoli. And those are exchanging gas between your blood and your lungs. And what happens in case of SIBO or bacterial fermentation in your GI system those bacteria are emitting gases and those exchange through the, the lining of your intestines and your small bowel and they go into your bloodstream, exchange in the lungs and come out of your breath. And so we get rid of that first air that we don't want, which is mostly room air. And then we're getting the air at the bottom of your lungs. And so while you're blowing, you have an evacuated tube that is a proprietary vacuum of of a certain way so that we know that we're getting the least amount of contaminants or room air potential. And the tube itself is designed to not have any kind of contaminants in there. You insert that tube into the mouthpiece while you're blowing and it sucks your breath sample in. Yay, your sample is inside this beautiful little tiny tube. We label it and now we have your control sample. So then what happens is you will take um, 10 grams of lactulose for those that have prescriptive rights and that are doing that, or you'll do um, somewhere between 25 and 50, maybe 75 grams of glucose, and then you'll wait 20 minutes and you'll do another sample and you'll repeat that for three hours or so throughout your testing period, collecting individual samples every 20 minutes for that time frame. And what's happening is this bolus of sugar, this little ball of sugar you drank at this 
one moment is traveling down your GI system. And as it travels down, if there is an overgrowth of bacteria, that bacteria sees that sugar and says, hooray, I have food. And they start to gobble on that. And that begins the fermentation process where those bacteria are fermenting that particular sugar. And that creates the gases, either hydrogen or methane. And that begins to then go through the process of exchanging through your walls, goes in your blood and out your lungs. And so what we're looking for on a test is an increase or some sort of activity on your breath test results. We also measure carbon dioxide during the test, and that's not a byproduct of the bacterial fermentation. That's really only used for quality control of the sample to ensure that we're getting a very good breath sample from you, because we all have to produce CO2 or else we wouldn't be alive right now. And our body physiologically keeps that at a very, very tight tolerance, and it's usually around 5.5%. Um, CO2, depending on the elevation or where you're located in the world, but on average, it's a good five and a half percent. And so we look at that to kind of determine, okay, is this a good sample or, or not good sample? And if it happens to not be that good, luckily our machines are designed in a way where they have a function built in for the practitioners or the labs that are analyzing them to kind of correct those samples to be like, if you were to produce about five and a half percent, this is what it potentially should have been. So it keeps a really good normalization and stabilization of your samples throughout the test period. One thing that people and myself included the first time I did it worry about is, oh, how do I know if my breath went in the tube? And so one question I often have people ask me is, can I see my breath go in the tube? Should I see it fog up or should I see some form of condensation on the tube? How do I know that the sample's gone in? Yeah. So what I suggest doing is maybe doing it in front of a mirror so that you feel more confident. Because the sample tube is so small and you're not blowing at a consistent measure, it just sucks in and then it's done. It's not going to take any more than it can. You won't see condensation in the tube. And what we manufacture is what's called a closed system. So it's not like you're blowing into it directly and you're fumbling with caps or things like that. This is a very, very tight, special system system where you just, you have to trust it. And so by doing it in front of a mirror, you get to see the mouthpiece itself and where you're inserting the tube. And you know that you've inserted that tube completely to the end of the stopper. No problem. There is a little gray rubber sheath currently on those needles. Don't touch it. Don't take it out. It is there for protection. And what what happens is when you insert that tube, the needle will actually go through that little rubber sheath and go into the tube itself. So I, like I said, just do it in front of a mirror sometimes, maybe for the first one so that you see it and you can feel it and you understand it. And then go ahead and label it after. If for some reason you happen to really not trust it um, because you, you know that you didn't puncture it, right? Go ahead and puncture it again. It's already been evacuated and or it's, it's already taken your sample. So you're not going to be able to double up on your sample because of the way that you know, that, that type of system works. It's not going to do it. Don't puncture it a bunch of times and, you know, do three or four to try to figure out, make sure you really, really did it because that's not the case. But, you know, and the first sample is always kind of the weirdest when you first do it and you've never done it before. But once you do that, you're, you're totally fine. And you're going to be like, oh, this was so much easier than I thought it was. (laughs) Okay, never mind. (laughs) And you just go on. Yeah. It's really not that hard. It's just that first one where you're just so keen to get a good sample because you really want to know if you've got SIBO or not. Now, 
going back to the start, we talked about the preparation diet. I'd love for us to talk about what that includes because there is so much contrasting information given to patients. Some patients like myself are given a very strict protocol, which literally includes white chicken, white fish, white rice, such as basmati or jasmine rice, a little bit of like a tablespoon of oil to cook in, salt and pepper, aged cheese if you can tolerate it, and eggs if you can tolerate it. And that's it for the 12 hours that you do the eating or two days if you're constipated and then you go into a fast. Whereas I know other people have been told, you know, eat whatever you want or just do a low FODMAP diet. What should we be eating for our prep diet before we do a SIBO breath test? So the way that the preparation works and where it originally came from was way back in the 70s and 80s when these tests first started coming out. And there was a published study that that was showing, okay, if we do a breath test, you know, what should patients eat, right? This is what we're talking about. Okay. So they found that when you eat white rice, such as basmati or jasmine, um, and plain baked or broiled chicken, fish, turkey, things like that, um, that that gives you the, the most the best ability to make sure that things are processed out of your body because we want you in a fasting state. So that is really the kind of original protocol for the test. And we like to try to stay as bland and basic as that is possible. And I know that is not something that um, vegans and vegetarians want to hear because it's very tough to, to, to only eat rice or maybe eggs, you know, if you are a vegetarian and maybe you do eat eggs, but if you're vegan, you don't. I mean, there's, it's very, very tough. And sometimes, you know, the breath test may not be for everybody and that's okay. There might be other ways that your practitioner can try to to, to get you a test. The breath test is not the only way and the, the best all be all, right? But that is the best opportunity for you to get a good baseline sample because that is really what your practitioners need to see. And if you eat things like legumes and beans and cruciferous things like broccoli and zucchini and slowly digesting or hard to digest foods, then they may still be in your body when you do your baseline and provide a falsely high reading, which will totally give you a false positive. And now you're being treated for something that is completely wrong. And it's good, or your practitioner may not be able to interpret your test at all because it makes absolutely no sense to them. So do yourself a favor and follow the protocol that's listed in your test kit. And so some practitioners work with Quintron directly to come up with their own protocols that they see clinically that works well for their population of patients because globally, we all have different diets and we all suffer from different things or we all process things differently or you specifically as a patient I know can tolerate this. And so I may give you the go ahead to do something that maybe someone else can't do. Always follow what your practitioner wants for you because they're they the ones interpreting your results, not Quintron and not another laboratory. So at the end of the day, you should always follow your practitioner because they have a reason, whatever that may be, for allowing something in your specific diet or your patient population. But the very, very basic, yes, baked or broiled chicken or fish with salt and pepper only, maybe a tablespoon of olive oil or maybe coconut oil. Um, eggs are okay and turkey and fish. Um, some people allow um, minced 
uh, lean meat, if you will, um, but other places don't. So, I mean, really just kind of look at the instructions that are in your test kit and don't always rely on uh, maybe some of the social media groups that we're all involved in where it says, well, my instruction said this and my practitioner said I can have that. Should please just follow the instructions inside your test kit because there is a reason for your specific practitioner to do that. If somebody hasn't received instructions on what to eat with their prep diet, what should they do? Well, first, I would always reach out to the practitioner because maybe they forgot to include it for you and maybe they have something great and they just had a whoopsie poopsie moment and forgot to give it to you, right? If you don't have that, then I would just contact Quintron directly if it is a Quintron test kit and you'll be able to see that because there's Quintron printed on all the stuff on the inside, the tubes, the mouthpiece and all that. Then I would make sure that you just reach out to us. We'll be happy to give you our general guideline, which is kind of the very, very basic bare bones like this is what we recommend and anything beyond that that's up to the physician right so we will be able to happy to email that to you um, I think you can find it directly on our website as well in one of the patient prep sections of the website where you can read that and and that's a really good starting point if you don't happen to have instructions in your test kit from your practitioner I'm doing my SIBO breath test, but I'm also doing one for my mum. Well, I'm not doing it. My mum is doing it. So after years and years and years of digestive issues, she recently went off for an endoscopy and I said to her, when you get that endoscopy result back and it gives you an all clear, will you then do a SIBO breath test? Because I have long suspected SIBO is a one of her underlying issues with her terrible heartburn and bloating and distension and pain. And so she said, okay, sure, I'll do it. So I organized a breath test with her and she loves her food as do I. And she was, she's been feeling quite nervous around the prep diet. So I thought I'd share what we're doing. Um, we're, we're doing it together. So we're doing prep day together and we're doing test day together. Uh, I'll obviously be holding her hand through the process, but our breakfast, um, well, actually I won't eat breakfast because I often don't, but my mum will have just a couple of eggs beaten and cooked. Um, we'll just scramble them just eggs alone, nothing else, um, seasoned maybe with a little bit of salt and pepper. For lunch, we have some white fish. So I'll just cook the white fish and we've got some jasmine rice. So it will be white fish and some white rice, salt and pepper on that. And then for dinner, we've got a chicken breast fillet each. So we'll have, I'll just bake a chicken breast fillet. I'll season it with salt and pepper and you've guessed it, some white rice will go with it. Um, So it's a very simple diet for the day. I often have people, you know, say to me, well, I don't know how I could eat that stuff. And what I often say is it's just one day, it's 12 hours because you then go into a fast for 12 hours. I always say fast overnight when you're asleep. So Uh, We'll be eating until 8 p.m. and then we will fast until 8 a.m. and we will commence the test at 8 a.m. the following morning. So fasting is super easy when you're asleep because you're asleep. You're not thinking about not eating. Um, One question I get asked um, by people is I was doing my prep diet and then I ate a food that I'm not supposed to. I totally forgot and I had some chocolate. Have I ruined my prep diet? Should I start again? So what's your um, response or your take on that, Eric? Should we 
start again, do it another 12 hours, or will it be okay if we have accidentally eaten something we shouldn't? So that's kind of a tricky question. And I do hear that quite often. People cheat um, and I'm guilty of it too. Sometimes I'm just like, maybe I'll sneak this because I'm really hungry. Or you get in your habit and you just, you reach for something and you eat it like, oh, shucks, I shouldn't have did that. Um, Depending on when you ate it and how much of it um, will really kind of determine whether or not you really shouldn't do the test or not, or maybe extend it out. If you maybe cheated earlier on in the day before you, you know, maybe you wake up at 9 a.m. and you cheated at 10 a.m., well, by 10 a.m. the next day, you're probably okay, right? Unless you ate like a giant lasagna or something like you really went went, went nuts with, with eating something funny. But for the most part, your body is a little forgiving and so is the test. What I would suggest, though, is if you happen to cheat somewhere within your test, my, this is just my opinion and it hasn't been validated or anything, but I think like a rule of thumb, it's like, okay, well, let's say I cheat. Don't necessarily start over, but just delay maybe when you're going to do your test the next day by a little bit longer, right? So let's say I was supposed to start fasting at 8 p.m. and I cheated at 7 p.m. Well, then maybe extend your test an extra hour before you start because your body really needs to kind of process that out. So maybe you start your test at 9 a.m. versus 8 But again, that's only if you've really cheated a little bit and maybe had one little Hershey chocolate kiss or something like that, right? But if you have a full chocolate bar, I mean, you really should kind of wait a little bit longer. And it's really hard to do when you're doing the home test because you don't have that immediate feedback from doing it in the practitioner's office to know. So that's a little bit of a a really, like I said, a tricky question to answer because everybody is different for someone who might be more constipated with the slower motility. They may need to wait longer. Someone with a faster transit that usually has diarrhea, they, they might be okay. And and so uh, I would, I would usually start with saying, check with your practitioner, let them know what and how much you ate um, before you start the test. And a lot of times they may feel comfortable with what you ate. Um, and they'll say, go ahead and do the test. And they'll make notes in their system so that when they're interpreting your results, that they have an idea of what might be happening. Um, if there is some kind of anomaly or a weird result that they're seeing. And in the case of someone that the practitioner really doesn't know, then then I would, the, most, most of the time, if the practitioner doesn't know, they're going to tell you to start over again and maybe extend it out or take it in the afternoon. So really, really always just try to follow the diet, make yourself notes to not cheat, um, uh, maybe hide the food. I don't know. <laughs> but as a foodie myself, it's very hard and habits are hard to break. But, you know, when it comes down to testing, Really just try to stick to the diet as best as you can so that you don't booby trap yourself into having to do it another time or even having to, to put the practitioner in a spot where maybe they're having a hard time uh, to, you know, looking at your results. Because at the end of the day, like you were saying, Rebecca, 12 hours is 12 hours. The rest of it, we're sleeping. This is one day. And, you know, a lot of us have been suffering. Some patients I've talked to for 40 plus years. 12 hours is worth the next 30 that you're going to get out of a healthy lifestyle. So please just try to do it because it's your body, your body and yourself deserve it. Well said, Eric. And (laughs) something that I do with myself when I'm getting ready to do the prep is I mark it out in my calendar first and foremost. So I pick a day 
I pick two days when I can do this. So the prep day I pick when I've got the time to focus on the fact that I'm just eating very plain cooked food. So I don't do it on a day when I'm going to be out running around and I'm not going to have access to my kitchen and I, you know, on a day where I'd have to grab food on the go, don't do your prep diet on that day. Pick a day when it works for you. Likewise, pick a day to do your test that works for you as well because you need three hours where you're every 20 minutes taking a breath sample. So if you've got to run the kids here and go pick this thing up from there and you've got a meeting, that's not the best time to do it. It's better, in my opinion, to wait for two consecutive days that are clear where you can focus on yourself and your health, maybe three days if you've got to do a two-day prep diet if you've got really bad constipation. It is worth waiting to do it at the best time for you so you get the best results. If you're going to invest in doing a test and spend your hard-earned money on doing it, do it right. That's my that's my approach to it. I'm not going to do it at a time when I just can't fit it into my schedule. So I always find the time. You know, I could have done my breath test this week, but I didn't have a couple of days where I could dedicate to the prep for it. And my mum, uh, I really wanted to do it with her. So I was holding her hand through this process. So we had to set a date for next week when we could do it together. So part of me was like, oh, I just want to get on and do it. But then I thought, no, let's wait until we can do it properly. We can do it together. I can hold her hand. We're both in a relaxed state when we're doing the test. Now, there's a couple of other things that we do need to do before we even go into the testing process, and that's around uh, ceasing or just pausing particular medications or foods. Are you able to talk around what other things we need to do in the lead up to testing? That's a good question, hey? I've got loads more just like this coming up after this break. We'll be back in a moment. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Are you able to talk around what other things we need to do in the lead up to testing? Yeah. So um, some of the things you want to avoid will be listed in the instructions in your test kit. And they're usually at the very beginning or the second page of your test report, depending or your test instructions, depending on where you're getting them from. But some of the things we want to avoid are colonoscopies or uh, barium studies, because we don't want to have your body completely flushed out of the bacteria that might be in there. Um, same with antibiotic treatment. We usually give it about two weeks or so for certain antibiotic treatments related to the GI system. 
Um, certain probiotics, some some practitioners allow you to stay on them, but some don't. Um, kind of the rule of thumb is give it at least a day or two, sometimes a week if you can. But any any medication that might be life, you know, you need it to survive. Basically, you want to stay on that and talk with your practitioner about that before you start the test, and they'll be able to tell to make sure tell you to make sure that these particular medications will or will not affect the test. Because if if for some reason there's a medication that conflicts with your diet, such as, you know, you can't fast for so long because of a certain type of diabetes or it's really volatile, right? You don't want to fast and, and screw that thing up. At the end of the day, we want you healthy. And so you want to make sure that you follow, like I said, antibiotics for 14 days, be off of those. If you have really um, explosive or watery diarrhea, that's maybe not a not a good way to start your test off. And I know that many of us that have struggled with diarrhea, and that's why we're testing for SIBO, it's kind of a, well, if I have diarrhea, then and I can't do the test, well, then why would I do the test? It's not about regular diarrhea that we, we typically have. It's usually like an acute or quick onset. Maybe you got the flu or you got some some quick food poisoning, right? Which is maybe why you had to get SIBO in the first place, right? You want to make sure that that's eradicated before because your body, if your body is expelling really watery or clear diarrhea or yellow discharge diarrhea that's explosive, it, your body is flushing out bacteria. And remember that the rule of the test with SIBO or even any breath test is we need that sugar to react with the bacteria in your colon or in your small intestine. So if you're if you have really explosive diarrhea and you're flushing that out, no bacteria means flatline test. And so you you could have a false negative on your hands. Now, if you have if you struggle with diarrhea on a regular basis, then and your doctor or practitioner is asking you to still do the test, then continue on with that. They know why you are testing and they are going to be able to interpret your results based on that. But if you're doing it on your own, um, just kind of keep that in mind that that's a thing to also be aware of. Now, we talked a little bit about the two different types of sugar solutions that you can drink. So we've got lactulose and glucose. A question I often get asked by people is, can I have the lactulose when I've got a lactose intolerance? So what's the difference between lactulose and lactose? So I'll start with lactose. So lactose that we do for the test is 25 grams of pure milk sugar. It is only lactose in there. And that's all it is. Now, when you look at lactulose, lactulose is a synthesized disaccharide. So it is, it's manufactured. It's not a naturally occurring sugar that happens out in the world. And yes, there is technically, in most cases, lactose in lactose. Chulose. However, it is such a small, minuscule amount that it will not register or affect your test um, or even create symptoms of lactose intolerance. If we're talking about less, usually less than 1.2 grams, or even might even be like 0.2 grams of, of lactose in a lactulose solution. So if you have lactose intolerance and you're having to do a SIBO test and your practitioner is asking you to do lactulose, it is not going to exacerbate your lactose intolerance unless you are really, really severe, which is very, very rare. I mean, if you can't smell milk without getting sick, then I'm sure this test will be okay for you. And then glucose. So there's also the glucose sugar. So let's talk about the difference of the sugars going through the small intestine and the digestive tract and why a practitioner would use lactulose 
or glucose or both? Sure. So lactulose um, is actually a prescription drug in the United States and some other countries. And so um, practitioners that have prescriptive rights are allowed to do that. Otherwise, they have to use glucose. And so there's one difference right there of why a practitioner may ask you to do one over the other. Another reason may be if you're diabetic or have some sort of hypoglycemia or some sort of glycemic issues, they may ask you to do lactulose because it's not absorbed into the bloodstream like glucose would be. So it won't necessarily mess with your blood glucose levels. Some practitioners prefer lactulose um, over glucose because of the way that they've been educated on interpreting the test results. So Technically, according to certain studies, glucose may be more sensitive and more specific than lactulose, but most of your listeners have probably heard that the glucose is absorbed earlier on in the digestive system, so it doesn't make it to the distal end, meaning the distant part, the farther end of your small intestine. So you could miss potentially um, maybe a further part of bacterial overgrowth that might be further down in your digestive system. And so... What'll happen is you'll be interpreting results in two different ways. If you're doing a glucose test, that practitioner will be looking for an early and high increase of hydrogen and or methane in that test period and assuming that there's nothing beyond that when it gets into the colon because it should be absorbed by then. And what's the beauty about that is that any rise that's higher than the threshold and that's maybe elevated or sustained is a positive test. It's very, very clear. It's very simple to interpret. When you get into the lactulose, um, which is preferred by most, most practitioners, it's because they're super educated in how they're interpreting it. And what they're looking for is what's called, they call it the biphasic. And like your listeners know, it, biphasic means two. So they're looking for two peaks. <clears throat> what they're looking for are two peaks. One peak earlier on in the test usually happens sometime in the 30 to 60 or maybe 90 minute mark of the test, which will see an increase of hydrogen and or methane, which is an indication that it's probably in the small intestine. Then sometimes we'll see it dip or it may just increase from that moment further, which is when that bolus of sugar that we talked about earlier, that ball of sugar is going from the small intestine into the colon where now there's tons of bacteria that's supposed to be there that's fermenting the gas. And so they're looking for a much higher spot. So some practitioners will say, okay, lactulose, I'm looking for two peaks or a, an increase larger later on in the test. And that's confirming that everything prior to the colonic response is bacterial overgrowth. So it's really in how the physicians interpret and more seasoned practitioners um, such as some of the key industry leaders, such as Dr. Mark Pimentel and Allison Seebecker and Nerala Jacoby and um, a lot of the people that you've had on your show, actually. There, a lot of them prefer lactulose, but remember, they've seen hundreds and thousands of these tests, so they're very well-versed in seeing some of the anomalies that may occur and determining if, if a lactulose test is actually positive or negative or kind of on that weird little borderline where they're not sure, but they have an idea based on your medical history that this probably makes the most sense. 
And for our listeners, anybody that is wanting to do a SIBO breath test via Quintron, Quintron have got an amazing offer, with which is 20% off breath tests for patients. And all you need to do is head to the Quintron website, which is breathtests.com and enter healthy gut to get 20% off, which is such a wonderful offer. Thank you, Eric, for that generous offer to the Healthy Gut podcast listeners. And in terms of um, what we see on a test, so if a patient perhaps has gone and done a test on on their own without a practitioner and they're like, does this mean I'm positive? How do I know if I'm positive? Can we talk about the agreed, so there's a, a... a census or a forum of practitioners that sat down and and made a determination around what would be considered a positive breath sample or or not. Are you able to talk to to that and what what we what we should be looking for? Yes, so there are actually two types of consensuses that are out there. One being a more recent one called the North American Consensus. And that one is had by a lot of the key opinion leaders here in the United States, where they're looking at what clinically kind of makes sense for them, as well as from the research-based standpoint, where they have um, articles and abstracts that they've all reviewed to kind of say, okay, this is what really makes sense, and it's a good starting point. Now, mind you, this is a survey. The North American consensus is actually a survey from these practitioners and not, not necessarily a true consensus, um, but really it's a great starting point for practitioners and for patients to look at to kind of see if this makes sense of, of the results that they're seeing in, these, in their tests. Another one to look up is the Rome consensus for breath testing. And the Rome consensus is a very, very popular and well-known um, organization where they they also do the same thing that the North American census did, but they're looking at it in, a, in sometimes a little bit different way. It's a little bit outdated, but the principles and everything there are still true. So you may find a good um, synergistic relationship between the both where they're they're piggybacking off each other where it does make sense. So again, that's looking up maybe the Rome consensus for breath testing and the North American consensus for breath testing. And maybe you can glean some information off that for yourself um, if you are happening to do it without a practitioner um, or even giving that information to your practitioner for, who may not be well-versed so that they can look into that. And there's plenty of references on both the Rome consensus and the North American consensus for you to have a lot of fun digging into the research and learning more about why these key opinion leaders are are looking at this information in the way that they are. So it gives you a, a lot more education behind it as well. With regards to what we're looking for on a breath test, we've talked about uh, hydrogen and methane gases being present. What if somebody's only tested for hydrogen, for instance? Should they be going back to their physician and saying, hey, why didn't we test for methane? Why do we only look at one gas? What should we be looking for and, and how thorough should our testing be? So the industry standard amongst pretty much every practitioner and, 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 you know, in the United States, we've got the National Institutes of Health and University of Michigan and Cedars-Sinai, which we all know with Dr. Pimentel is that the standard is hydrogen, methane, and carbon dioxide. And again, like I said, hydrogen and methane is used for the, the interpretation for the practitioners and the carbon dioxide is for quality control of that sample to make sure we have a good sample. So that's really what you should be looking for. And and there are places back in the day that we only had hydrogen, you know, in the 80s and and 70s because we didn't know methane existed. And so 
there are still machines that are out there, even handheld devices that other um, companies have made that only measure hydrogen. Well, you're missing that potential link for yourself. And so um, if you only see hydrogen, then, then, you know, ask to see if they can do methane or have, find another reference. But more importantly, really take this into your own hands. If you're going to be spending your hard-earned money on this test, find out before you even do the test. Ask any place, any lab, I don't care who you're talking to, if you're going to do a SIBO test or a carbohydrate malabsorption test, ask the, ask the place, what gases are you testing for? And if they're not giving you hydrogen, methane, and carbon dioxide, then then either tell them they should be doing that so that they may know a little bit more because sometimes they might be out of the loop um, because they're so busy with a million other things that they're trying to help and, and maybe clinically that works for them. Or there are plenty of resources such as uh, thehealthygut.com where you can see, um, you know, li listen to the rest of the stuff here or even Allison Seebecker's site and other places where you can find potential resources that are doing um, the, the most, uh, most recognized testing out there. And then there's the third guess, hydrogen sulfide. <laughs> and I've done a podcast with uh, the wonderful Dr. P Mark Pimentel on this topic, but I don't know whether we can talk about whether what's in the pipeline for hydrogen sulfide testing. I know that uh, obviously Dr. Mark Pimentel has been studying it, uh, and uh, but there's nothing that's commercially available in terms of, yes, you can just go and order your hydrogen sulfide test as a patient, yet I know that there's there's plenty of people working on that solution. But um, if we have a, a flatline test, is that when we should be suspecting hydrogen sulfide? And if so, what should we be doing about it? Yeah, so there are some some great research that's out there. And Dr. Uh, Mark Pimentel and his crew are really having a, a fantastic um, effort to find, you know, these other gases and hydrogen sulfide appears to be a really good gas that might give us um, a little bit of information that maybe we were missing, especially with people with um, diarrhea. So um, there is nothing commercially available, like you said, currently right now. And a lot of that is still in the research and development um, through a lot of different companies, Quintron included, that we are working on um, making that available. And, and hydrogen sulfide is a very elusive gas. It's very tough. It's a very small amount. Um, and we have to find that right balance because we do naturally produce hydrogen sulfide for inflammation and muscle control and things like that. And so we want to make sure that we're measuring in a small enough level to where we're not going to do a disservice. We're not trying to kill off hydrogen sulfide bacteria completely and not have it in our body. Um, it is supposed to be there. But if there isn't, let's say, an overgrowth of that, that's where we might have some issues. And so um, when you're working on that, or when you're trying to test for that, having a flatline test doesn't necessarily mean that it is hydrogen sulfide. Um, it also doesn't mean that it's not hydrogen sulfide. We just don't know at this time, but we do know based on some of the research that's out there, and I believe Dr. Pimentel can attest to this as well, and even Dr. Jacoby, neurologist Jacoby, who's talked about hydrogen sulfide, um, it is a smaller amount of patients. So if you've had a breath test that is that you have hydrogen and or methane on the test, um, then it doesn't necessarily mean that your test is 
is not good because you didn't test for hydrogen sulfide, right? So usually if you have, or at least what it appears to be is that if you have hydrogen sulfide um, and when the, and during that research, it may mean that you don't have these other gases because the hydrogen sulfide is, is consuming or converting that hydrogen bacteria or hydrogen gas into hydrogen sulfide. So um, it's just one of those unique things. We're all learning more about it. It's on the forefront. You know, everyone wants to test for it, but commercially, it's it's not a very easy thing to bring to the masses, especially at a laboratory setting where you're going to be doing these tests at home like you are now. Most likely when these machines come out, um, you'll be needing to go to your practitioner's office to do that testing on site. So it is an exciting thing to be bringing out because we all definitely, definitely want to have um, this testing. And we definitely want to ensure that patients are getting a, a very comprehensive result. But please make sure that you don't get too discouraged that you can't do it maybe at home or um, super easily right away. We are still a few years away, in my opinion, of making it super, super easy to get to by, I mean, doing that at home versus going to your practitioner. And it's always the case when it's the new thing on the new kid on the block, when there's a new thing, everybody gets really excited about it. But like you said, hydrogen sulfide will only be present in a smaller subset of SIBO patients. And uh, a lesson um, I think that's really important is, and like you've touched on already, Eric, um, SIBO is only but one component of a whole myriad of things that can be going on in the digestive tract. I've got a client who was going through SIBO treatment and she was saying, I've still got such intense symptoms. I still feel terrible. And I kept saying to her, listen to your body. If your body is giving you really strong symptoms, keep looking because SIBO might not be the only thing at play. And she cleared her SIBO but still felt terrible. And luckily she's got a great physician on her team who was also continuing to investigate and they discovered she has C. diff. So now she's treating that and she's like, oh, no wonder I was feeling so sick. I had a concurrent infection as, long, as well as my SIBO. So it might not be hydrogen sulfide, guys. It might be something completely different. You've got to keep looking. It might be hydrogen sulfide, but keep looking. If your symptoms can persist, uh, if the breath test results are coming back clear, keep looking at what's going on. Now, I do want to touch on the accuracy of breath tests. I often see in the big online forums people saying, my doctor doesn't believe in the SIBO breath test, so they're not doing it with me because they said it's wrong, it's flawed data, uh, which I think is an unfair statement. Um, but I would love to hear your views, Eric. How accurate are the SIBO breath tests? Can we rely on this data for accurate diagnosis? So just like any test that's out there, no test is perfect. Um, and there are always room for improvement on every test. And do I think that the SIBO breath test is the end all be all? No. There are so many other things that you have to look at when you're looking at a breath test, uh, such as your medical history. And this is what practitioners do is they're looking at everything. It's like one big, beautiful storybook. And they're saying, okay, well, the breath test says this. Maybe they did some stool samples on you and some uh, blood work and all these other things. And they're looking at all of these wonderful things to put together a wonderful story about your body to determine if this is if what their assumption and your assumption of maybe what might be causing your issues makes sense. So it's not like the SIBO test is saying, oh, 
that's all I have and SIBO it is. Da, 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 da. You have to look at everything. And so when you only look at one, you're actually doing yourself a disservice because you really need to be looking at everything and let your doc, I know it's a pain in the butt and it's a, it's a lot of money sometimes to do all these different tests, but, but when your practitioner asks you to do different tests, you know, trust them and, and what they're trying to look at because there is a really, all of us are a really wonderfully unique puzzle and all of us are individual and there is no one test for anybody. So we have to allow our practitioners to do all the different tests to determine if what they're suspecting makes sense based on the results from either just the breath test or including a stool test or including a, you know, a histamine test or, or different blood tests and things like that, because it really all puts one big piece together for them. It does. And it's something that I've done myself working with a variety of practitioners. And I often talk about building a dream team of practitioners that can support you on your return to health. And I don't have one practitioner. I've got a team of practitioners that work with me. And we use testing as a way to give further insight into what's going on in my body. And so we've done things like I've done multiple SIBO breath tests now, but um, stool samples, so looking at what's going on in the lower GI, uh, blood tests to see what's happening at a at a blood level, um, physical assessments as well. And that's brought up the fact that I'm full of adhesions and that's one of the reasons I have SIBO because I'm all constricted and my small intestine is all wrapped up and kinked and no wonder I keep getting this bacterial overgrowth. So my, my breath test results are very useful, but we also use a whole variety of different tests to give a com more complete picture. But most importantly, my physicians ask me how I feel because we can also get a bit fixated on test results and forget to think about how you're actually feeling. And the most important thing is, do you feel good or do you feel bad? Um, because sometimes we can have a, we can still have SIBO, but we can feel so much better. So, um, you know, think about how you as a person, as a whole body are doing, not just worrying about what your test results say. Eric, what can people do if they're looking for a practitioner? We've talked about people who are perhaps doing the breath test on their own with that practitioner support. How can people find somebody that might be able to help them from a medical level? So what Quintron offers, which is a really great service, um, I, I encourage everybody to take advantage of it. Um, whether you're in the United States or anywhere in the world, um, you can reach out to us on our website, which is breathtest.com. There is a contact us section where you can ask us a question. Feel free to ask us if there's someone maybe in your area that's um, doing SIBO testing or carbohydrate malabsorption. We'll be happy to let you know if there's someone in your area that may uh, be able to work with you or, or be willing to take you on as a patient. We can't give you direct referrals, but we could definitely let you know some places that are in your area. And um, because we have our analyzers and test kits all over the world, this isn't limited to just the United States. Feel free to reach out via the website, or you can even call our customer service line, which is listed on the website as well. So 
Eric Hamilton from Quintron, thank you so much for joining me on the Healthy Gut Podcast today to talk about SIBO breath testing. I hope it's answered many of your questions around what is breath testing, how do we do it, what are we looking for. And uh, and as I said before, Eric has very generously offered uh, a 20% discount for patients who are looking to do a SIBO breath test. So head to the um, breathtests.com and you'll see there's the patient store there. You can um, not only order your breath test at a 20% discount, but if you're in the United States or Canada, you can also order one of my beautiful SIBO cookbooks. So Eric is my wonderful distributor in the States and for Canadians. So if you're wanting to get a SIBO um, cookbook, a hard copy of it, you can order it through Eric's website and he, him and his lovely team will dispatch a cookbook to you as soon as possible and you can start cooking immediately, <laughs> which is wonderful. So Eric Hamilton, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful time to talk with you as always. And guys, as I said before, Quintron have been an incredible supporter of the Healthy Gut Podcast. It's thanks to them that we've been able to bring you season two. So I really do encourage you to go to the Quintron website, breathtests.com, order your breath test, support Quintron in any way you can, uh, because they are such a huge supporter of the healthy gut and SIBO patients and the community. And just to finish up, Eric, we do have uh, many practitioners that listen to the podcast and we touched on briefly the fact that you have established Synergy and that is to bring um, amazing education to practitioners and you've got a Synergy conference coming up in 2019 in Seattle. Yes, so we have the Integrative SIBO Conference, um, which is an annual conference. Um, this would be the third year hosting it, and it was in New Orleans last year, and this year it's in Seattle, wonderful and wonderful Seattle. So um, you can head to synergycmegroup.com, and we have uh, webinars available as well as in-person tickets, and you can for practitioners, they can get their continuing education credits uh, by attending via webinar or in-person. And it's just a fantastic, fantastic lineup of physicians and practitioners from all over the world that come and speak. And we have um, this particular year is focused on the microbiome. And so it's very, very interesting to learn uh, about what we're going to be, you know, discussing this year. I'm I'm really excited to see what's happening. And um, last year was just advanced topics. And we've got some wonderful things for 2020, which we can't wait to talk about in, in April. So we look forward to seeing you there. Um, and, you know, for patients that are a little bit more savvy, they are welcome to listen to the webinar. But again, in-person tickets, we, we do prefer that the practitioners are there so they have the opportunity to sit in there because the spaces do fill up very quick. They do. And and I have attended uh, all of your Synergy conferences to date and I, I do plan on being there in Seattle and they are absolutely wonderful. The, the breadth and spread of uh, speakers is fantastic. I come away from your conferences, Eric, just having learned so much. So if you are a practitioner and you're wanting to attend, I really encourage you to head to the Synergy website and check out the integrative uh, SIBO conference in Seattle in April 2019. I'll be there. Eric will be there. A whole heap of amazing SIBO practitioners will be there. And it is a brilliant way to learn more about 
uh, SIBO and the microbiome. So I can't wait for 2019. So thanks very much once again, Eric, for your incredible support to the Healthy Gut podcast and the SIBO community as a whole. Your work just benefits so many of us. And, uh, and I personally am really grateful for everything you do for us. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And, you know, we love you all so much. So let's all get better together. Yeah. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was our final episode of the Healthy Gut Podcast, guys. It's been a wonderful um, experience bringing season two uh, of the Healthy Gut Podcast to you. Um, like I said at the start, I would love for you to fill out a super quick survey on what you would like to see for season three. So head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast and you can take the quick survey there. Literally, it takes two minutes of your time. You'll be able to tell me the topics you would like me to cover in season three and the practitioners you would like me to interview as well. And don't forget, guys, to sign up as a member of the Healthy Gut Podcast. It's free to join. It costs you zero dollars to do so and it means that you get access to the full transcriptions of the Healthy Gut Podcast for season two and season three coming up and it also means you're first notified when an episode airs and you get special exclusive discounts and offers um, as being part of the Healthy Gut Podcast membership. And finally, guys, keep in touch while we're on hiatus between season two and season three. Come say hi on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Pinterest, and Google+. We're everywhere. Look for us under the healthy gut. So until season three, guys, I'm Rebecca Coombs, your host, and I've absolutely loved bringing the Healthy Gut podcast to you for another season. See you in season three. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Red Lemon Productions for the production and original music score of this podcast. To find out more about their services, head to redlemonproductions.com. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.